Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this very special episode of Risk, live from Caveat 2, you'll hear Heather Farley. I knew what I had to do. I had to get here. Because Bono and I were to be wed (laughs) on the top of the Empire State Building. That and so much more, because this whole episode will be a celebration of what a glorious night we had at Caveat in New York last Thursday. We want you to hear how alive, how heartfelt, how connected that room feels. When we hung out with the audience afterward, they couldn't stop talking about how dearly they love the show and how hopeful they are that we find a way to make it through this existential financial crisis we're in. We're about 10% to our fundraising goal now, so keep sending that love and that financial support at patreon.com slash risk or at paypal.me slash risk show. Another thing we had so much fun talking about with fans after the show are the new events we're debuting this summer, where the storytelling that happens comes from you, the attendees. We're calling these interactive social events Risk Presents What's your story? Where myself and other producers of Risk are your hosts, and we help you meet and share stories and more with each other. So stay tuned. What's your story is coming. As is our next LA Risk show at our new home there, the Lyric Hyperion, on July 18th at 7.30 p.m. Remember, We're now at the Lyric Hyperion on July 18th in L.A., and tickets are at risk-show.com slash live. We'll be right back. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Folks, if you like good old-fashioned true crime mysteries, if you like stories where you feel like you're a detective finding clues, June's Journey is the name of this new game that you can play on your iPhone or your Android. You are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder. It's this well-to-do family in the 1920s living in a great Gatsby-like mansion. Each scene uncovers new aspects of the story. Some parts are in New York. Some parts are in Paris. There's all kinds of objects you're finding and trying to assess whether they're meaningful or not. You collect information, filling out your own photo album, and you're keeping track of all the characters. There's romance. There's scandalous family secrets. It feels like a really fun play or movie. And I've only made it through like five scenes, but I am told you could crack the case. All you need is an internet connection and downloading on iOS or Android. So discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. 
Now, I should warn you that the second story on this episode by David Drake includes animal death in it, but from natural causes. And eventually, we'll run all five stories from last Thursday on the podcast, but today, we'll be hearing three of them. So, without further ado, now here's the show. Beautiful audience, big, big, big crowd here tonight. Oh my God, thank you so much for coming. Risk is the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. Some of the stories are kinky, some of the stories are scary, some are beautiful, tear jerking, some are sad. Uh, anyway, we are going to have an outrageously wild emotional ride tonight. They, I, I call it the emotional nudist camp that is Risk. But I want to start with an extraordinary story. And she came here from the Berkshires in Massachusetts. She's a first-time storyteller. And we always say show a ton of love to our first-timers, because they really are taking a risk. She'd like me to say, Heather has been ready for you. Are you ready for her? <laughs> Please welcome to the stage, Heather Farley. Okay, by the fall of 2014, I knew my second marriage was over. The fighting had become vicious, and by the end, fighting was all there was left. So when one night after a particularly explosive incident, I told him to get out and take his filthy cat too, he did, also taking our one shared car but I was pretty content with the way that wrapped, so that was that. We had left my home of 15 years in Brooklyn, and it was really an Irish exit. We'd gone back to our mutual home county of the Berkshires. Even though I was back home, I hadn't really interacted with any of my old friends. I hadn't made any new ones. He was all I had, and he was gone, and... I knew there would be things to be sorted out. I'd have to find a new place to live. I'd have to get a car. I'd have to get a job. But that would all happen in time. I was first going to just let the dust settle and enjoy this apartment that felt like Shangri-La compared to the basement in Williamsburg. What I loved best about this place, I mean, besides the fact that it was pretty nice, was that the downtown where it was located was a ghost town at night. So if I wanted to crank my tunes and music was really always such a safe space for me in a difficult time, I could, and I did. So I just kind of got lost in the sound and figured, you know, come what may, I'd handle it. When a U2 album was released that September to iTunes, unbidden, and... <laughs> magically showed up in my phone. I, I couldn't remember buying it. I was broke. And I'd never been a mega fan, but I was the right demographic. And I was like, okay, new album. I'll, I'll get behind this. Not realizing that this was the most reviled, <laughs> um, you know, kind of musical release ever. But, but I was about it. So I started listening to it over and over and over again. And I was always one to parse the lyrics of songs. You know, they were always all about me and what I was experiencing at any given time. On that album, it was the track Every Breaking Wave. The lyric in particular, baby, every dog on the street knows that we're in love with defeat. Are we ready to be swept off our feet and stop chasing every breaking wave? And I thought I'd been swept off my feet the first time I got married, the second time I got married, I was wrong. So one Sunday night, it's around midnight, I learn that U2 is in the city, New York City, promoting this album. I knew what I had to do. I had to get here because Bono and I were to be wed. 
on the top of the Empire State Building. <laughs> the fact that I'd been diagnosed with bipolar earlier that year and had stopped taking my medication earlier that summer was neither here nor there. <laughs> so I threw on my pristine white trench coat. It was the closest I had to marital attire. And I remember my ex had taken the car, but I figured I would just walk out of the house. First one I saw, I'd hop in, I'd get behind the wheel, I would head to New York City, nuptials, etc. So I did. The fact that there was a car parked directly next to my building with the keys and the ignition <laughs> felt like a sign. <laughs> so I got in the car and I turned the key and began to drive. I turned up the radio, Bruce Springsteen was on, he was not my paramour, but he would do in a pinch. <laughs> and the journey had begun. I was pulled over 15 minutes later. I probably was not driving as well as I could have under other circumstances. I was very excited, I had a place to go. So I knew enough to remember that this car did not belong to me. Um, I was closely connected to that fact of life. But I thought maybe I could just eyelash my way out of it. I could flirt my way through this and I, I, there wasn't much of a plan, but I rolled down my window, officer approaches. I notice his name is embroidered on his uniform. And I say, officer, may I see your badge? Killing time. And he points to this embroidered name. And I said, that's not what I asked for. I wanted to see like a metal badge like I'd grown up seeing on chips or so. I don't know what I had in mind. And it occurs to me that maybe he's not a real police officer. And maybe I'm in danger. So I roll the window back up and I gun it. Starting a 50 mile, 70 mile per hour high-speed chase down Route 7 of Berkshire County, a very sleepy part of the world. Every time I passed into a new township, a couplet of cruisers joined the parade I'd begun, blue and whites flashing, and I was not stopping for anything. I wasn't going in the right direction of New York anymore. I don't know where I was going, what I thought I was doing, but I wasn't stopping until the sheet of spikes they'd laid down in the road <laughs> stopped the chase for me. So, at that point, I kind of had surrendered <laughs> to the reality of the fact that, you know, I wasn't going to get any farther, at least not immediately. Officer approaches, short exchange. What I remember is that the rest of the battalion that had been following us we're all laughing, and I didn't see what was funny at all. So they cuffed me, and they put me in the back of the cruiser. I was very slender then. I wasn't taking great care of myself. And I somehow managed to pull a Houdini, <laughs> wriggle out of my cuffs, toss them in the front seat, <laughs> through the divide, and say, you're going to have to try harder than that. I mean, I was... <laughs> Um, so I spent a night in jail and was taken to the local hospital where I was put on a cocktail of medication that would change my life forever, for better, because I never knew how sick I was. Remember though, we have the matter of Grand Theft Auto to deal with. So any true crime fan knows that less than 1% of people plead insanity, defendants in the US plead insanity, of that 1%, less than 25 are successful. I sat with my lawyer. We decided we'd give it a shot. I met with a forensic psychiatrist. I'm a big Law & Order fan. This was exciting to me at the time. I was still not quite back grounded yet. I remember at the end of the interview asking him, I said, so do you think I was insane? You know, do you think this is going to work? And he looked at me and nodded and smiled and said, 
So I went to court, and the judge, I stood by my lawyer, the judge kind of shuffles through the papers pursuant to my case, looks at my lawyer, looks at me. I don't remember exactly what he said, but my lawyer smiled at me, put his hand on my back, showed me out of the courtroom, and I was free. No fines, no community service, no record, no jail time, no shame. People have subsequently asked me, psychiatric professionals, counselors, whatnot, if I remember what happened that night. And I guess it's not atypical for someone (laughs) experiencing a psychotic break to not remember any of it, but I remember all of it. The stars in the sky, the feeling of excitement, the laughter, and that is a blessing and a curse. Heather Farley, everyone! Holy cow! For a first-time storyteller, that is something else. Wouldn't it be wild if, if it turned out that, like, it's a totally different story and has nothing to do with all of that, but Heather is currently betrothed to Bono? <laughs> we'll have to have her back for that one because it takes a lot more explaining. Your friend and mine, Kevin Allison, in the second half of Rules! Hello, 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 hello! Um, oh my gosh, that was so wild because I was talking to someone during the intermission who has told a story on the show before also about bipolar, and Bono was also in that story. <laughs> chasing him around Dublin with the CIA. Uh, And uh, yeah, it's just interesting how he uh, pops up. He's a lightning rod, that Bono. Uh, But Heather, we were talking backstage and she was talking about like how she would only gradually start coming out to people in her life in tiny little pieces about the whole of that story and that tonight really felt like a full coming out. And I love when people feel like doing the show is kind of therapeutic in a way. Like a lot of people have real breakthroughs when they come and share stories on the show. Yeah. And that's true for listeners too. And that's true for us in the staff too. Um, I'm so excited to bring our next storyteller up to the show. I think this is his third time, and he has been hilarious each time he's been on the show. He's been on Comedy Central, HBO, and Fox. He is the producer of the show Comedians You Should Know, NYC. Please welcome the stage, David Drake! (laughs) 
I wrote this story uh, 10 years ago, and uh, I stopped telling it because I, um, I, it didn't really have an ending. I just kind of fumble around, and it, it's kind of bleak, and uh, people just kind of be sad, and then I'd go. And uh, that's no <laughs> way to have a good time. So I, I stopped telling it. But then recently, uh, something happened when my daughter was born, and I was like, ooh, maybe this could be the ending. So we're gonna try that out tonight, and uh, hey, if it fails, just, uh, it'll just be a bad podcast, you know? <laughs> what are you gonna do? But we're gonna give it a shot. All right, this is the story about the time I gave a C-section to a cat. Uh, <laughs> this is a great story because I have a degree in creative writing, so already we've established stakes. I, I don't know what I'm doing. The short setup is uh, after college, me and my friend Mike wanted to do some community work, but we don't know anything about how to do that or where to start. Uh, luckily, we had a friend, uh, Claire, who we went to high school with, and she was trying to set up a program in Thailand uh, that works with schools, raises money for schools, paints libraries, does that kind of thing. And she's like, do you guys want to be a part of this program? And me and Mike were like, yes, of course, that sounds amazing. So we fly into Bangkok, and we're in Bangkok for four days, and then Claire comes in to meet us, and something happened within those four days where she lands and she's like, hey, the program kind of fell through and we can't work with schools anymore, but it's okay, I found this guy on this island, he works on this vet clinic, they have a big stray cat and dog population on the island, and they just need a lot of help neutering and spaying all of the cats and dogs, which is so different <laughs> than working with children. <laughs> I don't even know if I agree with that. Spaying, I've never met a dog I didn't love right away. Have as many dogs as you want. If anything, I would, there's so many people I would neuter before a dog. My friend Joe, he's 38, he's, oh, he eats food all gross, and he's always hooking up with these 20-somethings in bars, and then he tells me about it, and I, I get all the horny, and I bring all this dark, horny energy back to my family and my daughter. Neuter Joe and Joe. Million people. My parents, all right, listen. My parents have been in love and attracted to each other and together for 30 years. And uh, sometimes they'll be in my apartment and I'll just catch them look at each other and they're just staring into each other's eyes. And I'm like, get out of my apartment. <laughs> Gross. I walked in my parents four times. Three of those were when I was a child, which is fine. Because when you're a kid and you walk into your parents, you don't even really see like, you're, you see shapes, and your brain's like, don't, don't even worry about this, and then you kind of black out, and you live your life. But then the fourth time was uh, this last summer, yeah, where I was visiting my mom and dad, and I was making a sandwich in the kitchen, and then I heard my mother scream from upstairs, and I was like, oh no, mom's in trouble. And then I ran. I ran to my, my, I skipped stairs to get there. I burst into my mother's room and <laughs> she was fine. <laughs> she didn't need my help at all. In fact, that would be discouraged <laughs> in my family. So, uh, well, we're in Thailand, so I guess we'll be vets. So we go to this island. It's an eight-hour bus ride where uh, the seats, they reclined all the way back, which, come on, people don't deserve power like that. I was sitting on an eight-hour bus ride, and then an old woman's face entered my... I was like, this country is fucked. Like... <laughs> If this happened on planes, the world would be on fire. This is not allowed. Eight hour bus, four hour boat, and now I'm a vet. And, uh, and there was no process, they're just like, here you go. And so I started with basic checks on animals, which I hate doing. You have to 
take their temperature, you stick a thermometer in a dog's ass, which I don't know if you've ever tried to suck the joy out of a dog. That's a pretty nice, easy way to do it. Dogs would come in all happy and dog, and then I would stick a thermometer in their ass, and I actually watched a dog question its worldview for the first time, where it's like, hey, I'm a dog, and I stuck it in, and he's like, I never knew my father. I get the ball, I bring it back. What's the point? Yeah. But like all nightmares, you do it long enough, it becomes normal. So about a month in, I'm a veterinarian in Thailand. And this woman, she comes in and she brings in her hot cat. It's like, <laughs> it's, <laughs> this guy was a hard eight. Awesome body, okay. Listen, this isn't, nothing weird about this. You see enough ugly cats, you start to appreciate a good, Whatever. Brings in her hot cat, she puts it on the desk, and she's like, ah! She speaks Thai, I'd never learned Thai, so that's that to me. I was like, oh, something's wrong with the cat. She's like, ah, nah. I was like, I see, the cat's pregnant, gotta get the kids out, we can do it. So I bring the cat back to the veterinarian, and he opens up the cat, and I see the inside of a cat for the first time, and it's purple throbbing tubes. And I'm like, oh man, life is a nightmare. Wow, <laughs> we're all tubes. He cuts open one of the tubes and he pulls out four beautiful baby kittens. And uh, he washes those off and he hands them to me. And then he sews up the cat. And then he's like, hey, you just rub these all over the cat. Which is, I guess, something you have to do when you give a C-section to a cat. Because C-sections are natural to cats. They don't give them to each other, so. <laughs> Like, if they don't see themselves give birth, they don't believe that these are its children. So what you have to do is you have to trick the cat into believing that these are its kids. And the way to do that is you, you have to rub the kittens all over the cat so that they have the same vibe or whatever. <laughs> I'm not a vet. So, I'm rubbing cats on a cat for a, like a long time. There was no specific time given to me. I'm just rubbing. It looked like I was erasing a cat with other cats. I'm just rubbing them. I'm like, is this enough time? I, I guess. And then I put the cats next to the cat so that they're the first thing that she sees uh, when she wakes up. And then Papa's going to lunch. Because <laughs> you got to eat every day or else you get a headache and you get angry at your friends. So me and Claire, we go to lunch and we have a really nice time, and then we come back, and uh, Snowball, uh, that's the name of the cat, she has eaten two of the kittens. So we take the two remaining kittens away, we have them away from Snowball, and uh, we're like, what do we do? Because they, they do need to eventually be with Snowball because that's where they get their nourishment, that's how they live. So we have to think of a way to introduce them to Snowball and get her to take them in as her children and recognize them as her children. And the way you do that is you put a kitten in and you hope, please God, let this be the kitten that you just <laughs> think is yours. So we did that. We put a kitten in and Snowball started to lick it which is confusing because it's like, that's cat behavior, but that's also ice cream behavior. <laughs> is this good? Is this a food? But sure enough, Snowball did kill and eat them all. <laughs> so yeah, that's where the story used to end. You can kind of imagine how people would be a little upset. <laughs> so that was the end of the story, and then I came back to America, and I wrote the story, and I left people unsatisfied for a decade. But then something happened during the birth of my daughter, which changed it all. My wife was in labor, we're in the hospital, and in walks the nurse's assistant, and the nurse's assistant is Claire the woman who brought me to Thailand. And I have not seen Claire in 12 years. In fact, one of the last times I saw Claire was when we were delivering these lunch cats together or whatever. <laughs> I was like, holy God, it's Claire. And she brought fears out of me that I, I don't think most expectant fathers <laughs> have. 
I'm like, oh no, will my wife eat the baby? They put the baby on my wife, and I was like, you gotta really rub it in there, because she hasn't eaten in like a month or whatever, however long you gotta prep for this. But the most shameful thought I have, the thought I'm most embarrassed of, is when Claire handed me, my daughter, my sweet darling baby girl, for the first time, and I looked into her deep blue eyes for the very first time. My first thought was, oh, finally, I have an end to this bit. <laughs> Thank you. David Drake, everyone! Oh my goodness. The Lunch Cats. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, so listen, folks, this has been such a thrilling evening. We have one more story for you tonight. But I want to let you know we will be back here on September 28th. So come on back and bring friends. Now, our final story of the show goes into more serious territory. This is really exciting because she saw Risk when it was in Philly several months ago and thought to herself, yeah, I really want to, like, do that show. And so she came up, and here she is. She, she is a comedian in improv and sketch, but she is another first-timer for this kind of storytelling. So let's show her a lot of love. This is Yasmin Bedoun. So I was 13 when my parents finally agreed to let me go to summer camp. And I grew up in New York City, so summer camp is like a centerpiece of American childhood. And this was about to be the best summer of my life. Like it was gonna be this movie montage, Mia Thermopolis moment, when I would just cast off all traces of my Arabness, like the unibrow and the mustache, and I would transform into the real me. Like Yasmin 2.0, hotter, hornier, better than ever. <laughs> It was gonna be like a white baptism. <laughs> like I was going to submerge myself into this camp lake, a smarmy Middle Eastern girl, and emerge a beautiful white princess, friendship bracelets and all. <laughs> so instead of summer camp, my family usually would spend our summers visiting our extended family in Beirut, Lebanon. And this is like a very post 9-11 childhood. So Beirut is low-key kind of scary to me at the time. Like, Islamophobia is in full swing in New York City, and here I am in a country filled with people named Muhammad. Like, I have an uncle named Osama. It's crazy when you grow up afraid of your own people. So typically, we'd spend our summers in my grandma's dusty Beirut living room, just like waiting for it to be over. And my siblings and I would spend our days around her TV, this like ancient TV set, scrolling through all 12 channels, just desperate in a way kids these days will never understand. Like we'd find like a 1950s period drama and it would be halfway through and we would like crowd around that TV. <laughs> Our faces inches from the static, just soaking in the bliss of American entertainment. But, Okay, this summer is gonna be different. My parents have agreed I can go to summer camp after our trip to Lebanon, fine. So we're in Beirut and I am sleeping in as late as I can every day, just like willing this part of the summer to be over as quickly as possible. When one day my dad wakes me up and his face is looking at me softly, full of concern. And my dad and I are really close but I'm trying to like put some space between us in a way that like preteens who think they're grownups do. But I'm mostly failing because I love my dad so much, it hurts. And my dad looks at me and he says, Habibte, there's been an attack. Israel and Hezbollah are fighting. And a school in Southern Lebanon was hit this morning. 
and 12 children died. And I'm sitting in bed looking up at him thinking like, okay, and? Like, why did he wake me up to tell me this? Like, I mean, don't get me wrong. It's sad. I'm not an asshole. But like Southern Lebanon might as well be like Iraq to me. Like where we are in Beirut, there is a Starbucks and an H&M. And like sometimes my mom will take me shopping at the Zara if there's a sale. Like Southern Lebanon is a different country. But he continues. He goes, Beanie. That's my childhood nickname. He goes, Beanie. The Israelis, they also hit the airport. So we can't fly out. And they've bombed all the roads leading out of the country. So we can't drive out either. It's too dangerous. And he goes, Beanie, we're going to be stuck here for a little while. And that's when the gravity of the situation dawns on me. I'm going to miss camp. (laughs) (laughs) The edges of my mouth curl downward the way that they do before I'm going to cry, like a big cry. And my dad, he starts to console me and be like, it's okay, Habibte, we're going to be okay. And I realize he thinks I'm crying for a much nobler reason than I am. Because, like, at this point, I'm really not too concerned about the whole, like, war situation. Like, everything in my 13 years of life to this point have shown me that I'm basically the main character of the world. (laughs) And this is like before they chop off Ned Stark's head in season one. So like from my frame of reference, you cannot kill the main character in act one. It doesn't make sense for the story. But over the course of the next two weeks, I learn what war means. And pretty soon after that, I forget what camp is all about. Because every night now, there is a new attack. And every night, like, homes are being destroyed and neighborhoods are getting leveled. And, like, we're watching on TV as, like, buildings are coming down and, like, these skyscrapers, like, there's people inside of them. And this tiny country the size of Connecticut is being bombed to pieces and we're trapped inside. On the night with the heaviest bombing, I'm in bed next to my mom when we hear the explosions closer than ever before. And we realize they're hitting our neighborhood tonight. And my dad like flies into action. He's like pacing the room and calling people. And I'm in bed next to my mom. And my mom is like a no nonsense kind of mom. Like growing up, if we would like fall and scrape our knees, she'd be like, come on, get up, get it, you're fine. Or if I'm like in a plane and there's turbulence, she would kind of like look at me and like roll her eyes lovingly and be like, don't be an idiot, you're fine. So this like tough as nails mom is sitting next to me in bed and she's sobbing. And she is, like, rocking herself back and forth, praying to Allah that he spares our building. Just like, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. And I'm lying next to her, completely frozen, but my mind is racing. And I'm wondering if our building is hit, will there be a moment when we know before the rubble of seven stories comes down on us? Or will it just happen any second now and everything will go black? And I start thinking about my brothers because they're not in Lebanon with us this summer. And I realize that if we die tonight, they're gonna be all alone. And there's gonna have to be like a moment tomorrow when someone's gonna have to break the news to them to tell them that their family is gone. And they're gonna miss us so much. And that's when I start praying too. But we make it through the night. Our building is spared and outside is smoke and like rubble. And my dad realizes we need to get the fuck out of Beirut. So we drive north two hours and he checks us into this like bougie beach resort. And we are the only people there because like, shocker, no one's trying to go on a vacation in Lebanon right now. So I have this whole place to myself, which is actually kind of awesome because there's this like enormous pool 
and I have it to myself. And it doesn't take too long for me to make this hotel my like mental safe space. Like there's pizza in the restaurant and the room service makes like your towel into like the little swan thing. And I am like, this is where I belong. I will not leave this hotel no matter what. When? One day my parents get this absurd idea. They come to me and they go, Beanie, wouldn't it be nice if we left the hotel and we went into town for dinner tonight? Wouldn't that be nice? No, absolutely not. This is my home. And you will have to drag me out kicking and screaming, which they do. <laughs> because they're my parents. So we're walking to town and I am pouting. I like have my arms crossed and they're like strolling about, pretending this is like a nice family vacation. Like, what if we get ice cream after dinner? Won't that be nice? When we hear a plane overhead and it's really, really loud, it's close, it's too close. And we all look up suddenly, trying to find it, and we're all making this mental calculation of like, how close is it? Is it too late to take cover? What do we do? When we hear the explosion, and it's like this supersonic boom that just explodes the world into a million pieces. And when fear hits my body, my like legs go weak and my face goes slack. It's, it's almost like a drug hitting me. And I can feel the terror explode in my heart and ripple out in this nausea throughout my body. And after the fear comes the panic. Everyone starts fleeing from the site of the explosion. And I see in front of us this woman and her child and she's running and screaming at the top of her lungs. And this little boy is following her and his cheeks are like streaked with tears and he looks so scared and so confused up at his mom, not understanding what's happening to him. And this image of the woman and her son, it like etches itself into my brain. I like can still see it because I realize in that moment I've seen this before. Like, I don't know these people, but I've seen this, this tableau, this, like, freeze frame of Arabs running in fear, taking cover in nameless Arab cities before, in the newspaper and on TV and in magazines. I can almost see the headlines, another bombing in the Middle East. And I realize we're here now inside of the news story, but it's not a news story, and I realize it never was. It's always been real. So not too long after that, my dad realizes we need to get the fuck out of the country. And we take our chances on the road, this heavily bombed-out road to Syria. And we make it to Syria. And from Syria, we can catch a flight to Dubai. And from Dubai, we fly home to New York. And a week later, I am sitting in a bunk at summer camp, a shell-shocked 13-year-old. And the other girls are gathered around me, and they're really nice. And they're like, what's your name, and where are you from, and how come you missed week one, and are you excited for color war? <laughs> and my brain is like puttering out these error messages. Because like when we were in Beirut, all I wanted was to get out. And now that we're out, I just like can't believe that everyone else isn't in it or watching this conflict unfold with bated breath, worried about these people. And I like want to shout at these girls like there are people dying every day. There is like rubble and dust and like children covered in blood and and in Beirut, there is probably a 13-year-old girl who is, like, embarrassed about her unibrow and was supposed to be having the best summer of her life. And if we're all the main characters, then she is too. And this isn't supposed to happen to her. This isn't supposed to happen to any of us. So since that summer, I've gone back to Beirut each year. And each time I went, I found myself a little more curious about this place where I... Apparently, I'm from. And I found something new that I liked about it. 
and then loved. Like, I found out that this tiny country, like the size of Connecticut, it has these, like, epic snow-capped mountains and these dramatic valleys where water just gushes out of limestone cliffs and this beautiful seaside corniche where, like, children rollerblade and men smoke their argile, like hookah pipes. And the people are exuberant with life and welcoming and kind and hilarious. And when I was 23, 10 years after that summer, I moved to Lebanon. And at 24, I met my husband there. And I love being Lebanese and I love being Arab. And if I ever do have children, by God, I am going to drag them there every fucking summer to bask in the glory that is their homeland. Thank you. This is Risk. This is Amra Diab behind me now. This is a favorite of Yasmin's and a hugely popular hit from 1996. Yasmin was such a joy to be with that night. We're so thrilled that she pitched us and that we could get her up on stage in New York. And you can find her at Yasmin Beydoun on Instagram. You know, <laughs> there's something to be said that the show is still so strong, even when we're struggling to stay alive right now. You know, we're, we're certainly keeping things interesting. For example, before every wrist show in New York, JC, my business partner, my better half here, she tells the audience that they can't talk during stories, but they can feel free to fart. Well, folks, no one comes through quite like Risk fans do. Take a closer listen to this moment from when Heather Farley was on stage. So I went to court. The judge kind of shuffles through the papers pursuant to my case, looks at my lawyer. Now, where else on earth <laughs> Do you get valuable content like that? Listen, if you haven't heard, Risk is doing the biggest fundraising push we have ever done before this summer. We are extremely dangerously low on funds right now. With everyone on staff taking pay cuts while working much harder, our income streams will be more stable toward the end of the year. But first, we have to last to the end of the year. We're on thin ice, so if you feel the show does bring value to you, if you feel you'd miss it if it was gone, please chip in. We need all the help we can possibly get right now. There's so many perks to access at patreon.com risk, like hundreds of hours of bonus stories, personal check-ins, behind-the-scenes conversations, ad-free versions of the episodes, video calls with me, storytelling training, and more. Again, that is all at patreon.com risk. And if you want to make a one-time donation, that's at paypal.me slash risk show. We have a brand new anecdote compilation over there at Patreon right now. It was edited by Roman Den Houdiker, and the stories are by Sage Rorda, Rob Putnam, and Aaron Marr. And I finally said to him, I just have one question for you. How did you know my car was getting hit? And to that he responded, yeah, we got a call that a naked man was beating up a car in the parking lot. So... 
Patreon people can hear that and so much more over there. And I want to give a shout out to all the folks giving $25 or more there per month, including Ann Wolf Anderson, Kelly Lyon, Sean Snyder, Haley Kepke, Wanda Bowser, Julian Yu, Elizabeth Nudek, Lauren Piera, Sharon Porter, and Michael Stolper. Thank you all so, so, so much. And anyone out there listening, please give what you can as well, even if it's just a little. And if you want to make a one-time donation, again, that's at paypal.me slash show. And if you want to contribute in some other way than those methods, just email me at kevin at risk-show.com. We'll be right back. We're back. Well, folks, I already told you you're going to hear the other two stories from that same caveat show soon enough. Like next week, you'll hear my story in which I say, Get the mayonnaise! <laughs> However, that's next week. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk.